Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good morning to all of you. Hebrews chapter 9, welcome to the class. As you've already noticed, we don't discuss things in this class, we just, I just talk. That's not the best, but that's how it works best for me here. I've mentioned several times, if you have questions, write them down and take them to Glenn, and he'll deal with them. No, I'm serious. I'll be happy to talk with you privately anytime you wish about anything I present. I share my notes with you. I do hope they work. I put things in here that might seem not to be there, not to be needed for a while, but I hope they do relate to the subject at hand. The ninth chapter of Hebrews, the tenth chapter of Hebrews are my favorite chapters in the Bible. They're just wonderful, wonderful scripture because they talk about salvation in a way that they're not talked about in other places. So I'll read Hebrews 9.1. Then indeed even the first covenant, that's the law of Moses, had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Earthly sanctuary, of course, was the tabernacle. At first it became the temple. For a tabernacle was prepared, was prepared, the first place, that is the holy place, in which was the lampstand, table, and showbread, which is called the sanctuary. I want to pause here and make a few comments. The tabernacle itself was 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. Two houses, two rooms, a 15 by 30, the holy place, the 15 by 15, the most holy place. When the temple was built, those rooms were enlarged. But the back room, the most holy place, continued to be square. In fact, it was cubical. It was that high as well. The uh, holy place was a place where the regular priest could go into. The most holy place, only the high priest could go into. This furniture. One lampstand in the tabernacle, ten incidentally in the temple. The table of showbread, and that's all that's mentioned. There was a golden altar also there. It's not mentioned here. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but I want to talk about the showbread for just a second. The showbread is something we have not talked about, something we don't quite understand. However, there were 12 loaves put on the, show, on the table, 12 loaves of showbread, every Saturday afternoon after the evening sacrifice. That's when the temple servants were changing. The priests to one uh, part were given over to the other priests. It was the, the uh, moving out of one group, moving out of another group. They worked together on this. There were four men who brought the things into the, into the holy place that pertained to the showbread. Two men were there moving the old ones out, two men moving the new ones in. 
and then two men moving the old incense out, two men moving the new incense in. The priests were to eat the bread that had been sitting there for a week. And even though the Bible doesn't comment on this, it just says they did that. The Talmud says that bread was warm and fresh after a week. And the priest had to eat every bit of it. Showbread, what does that mean? Bread of the face. It was put before God. He was back in the most holy place. That was his throne room. And the bread interacted with him in some fashion we probably do not understand. Jesus, of course, is the bread of life. I'm not sure there's anything significant about that in relation to this. But I did find it interesting to think of Jesus, the bread of life, being born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Beth, house, Lehem, bread. city was named House of Bread. God has always placed great emphasis on bread. So here we are with the showbread. The bread of presence, the bread of face. The bread that somehow God and that bread interact. Very important, had to be done right. Behind the second veil, and if I can imagine here with you, if I'm standing at the second veil right here, and this is the most holy place, and I'm in the holy place, in front of me is normally the golden altar. On the no- I'm facing west, by the way, because east is the opening. The showbread is over here. The lamp is over here. And behind me is a veil. It goes to the outside. That's the first veil. And then this veil separates the holy place from the most holy place. That's the second veil. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these we cannot now speak in detail. There's a big question here that nobody has answered satisfactorily. It seems that he takes the Ark of the Covenant, the golden censer, and puts it into the most holy place. If the golden censer mentioned here is indeed the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of Incense, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, not the Ark of Incense, the Altar of Incense, it is sitting here like this is sitting right here. Only it incense is burned twice a day. It is the thing that relates mostly to the Ark of the Covenant where God has his throne room on earth. And some have surmised that this altar of incense interrelated so much to the Ark of the Covenant that even though it was literally in the holy place, he sets it in the most holy place because of its relationship with the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know this. Two times a day, regular priests came in and burned incense on the altar of incense. It was not literally and figuratively, it was not literally and actually in the most holy place. It couldn't have been because they would have gone into the most holy place 
to burn incense, and they didn't. Incense was burned there by the high priest once a year as he went on in the Day of Atonement. So you haven't learned anything. The reason you haven't learned anything from me is because I don't know anything. I just know this is a very difficult passage. And the best I can do is say it relates so well to the Ark of the Covenant, they interrelate, and the writer here just says, the golden altar of incense is in the most holy place. Notice also that the cherubim of glory in the most holy place at each end of the Ark of Covenant uh, have their wings overspread of it. This place where they overspread is the throne room of God. It's the mercy seat. It is the lid of expitiation, the uh, propitiatory place, the place where God is satisfied. Because on the uh, Day of Atonement, every year the priest comes in and sprinkles that place with bullet blood for himself and for all the priests and then comes in with goat blood and sprinkles it for the people. And then comes in with mixed blood and sprinkles it again. And then sprinkles the outside of the holy place, most holy place, in the holy place of all the things that were there. Now we're going to deviate just a little bit here because Aaron's rod that budded is not something we normally talk about. But you remember Korah who defied Moses and Aaron because of the authority God had given them. Korah was the first cousin. So he was in that same lineage, and he thought he should have the same authority and power. So God responds to him by telling Moses to get all the men, all 12 men of every tribe, and put their staves in there before the Ark of the Covenant. And that the man he selected, his rod would bud. Their names were on there. And Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, submitted his rod. Moses goes in the next day. At that time, he was going into the most holy place, it seems. The priesthood had not been set in place yet. He goes into the most holy place, brings the rods out, and Aaron's rod overnight had budded. That was an indication. God said, I have chosen Aaron. I have chosen that family of this tribe to be my to be my high priest that settled all arguments that rod was taken and put inside the mercy seat and down in the ark of the covenant under the mercy seat there it was the manna the commandments and Aaron's rod that budded very very important to these people and of course Korah and his clan were finally done away with. It came to pass, I should have read this, Numbers 17:8. On the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted, put forth buds, and produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. That was a miracle. I don't have to tell you that. And uh, then God picks up from there, <clears throat> defines the priesthood, in the next chapter and uh, shows what they are to do and uh, shows what authority they have. He did that in the face of the objection that Korah and his buddies had. An official 
priesthood is established. Now, let's go back to the text in verse 8, verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, that is, the official priesthood and so forth, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services, such as maintenance of the lamps, the lamp, I should say right here, later on lamps in the in the temple, but these, this lamp had to be filled with oil and the wick had to be trimmed and new wicks had to be supplied. Incidentally, they took the old garments of the priest and cut them and fashioned them into wicks for these lamps and of course they burned olive oil. The refreshing of the table of showbread and then the burning of incense. The burning of incense was the greatest thing a regular priest could do ever in his life. And he did it one time, only one time, unless there was an exception when all the priests who were up for doing that had already done it. That was not the exception. That was not the rule. It was the exception. That's the reason when I look in the book of Luke and I see Zacharias, the father of uh, John the Baptist, to come, as he goes into the temple to burn incense, I just, I, he's an old man. He's near the end of his priesthood, and he's never burned incense. And he is so, so happy and so spiritual, I should say. And as he is doing that, out of the most holy place comes an angel and talks to him about John, his son. And he said, how can I know that this is going to be a fact? And, of course, he was struck dead, dumb for having said such a thing and did not speak until... John was born, and all the ladies in the community, you know how ladies are when a baby is born. They're trying to name the baby. And, uh, and John's mother said, no, his, his name is going to be John. They said, you don't have any Johns in this family. Don't do that. And she said, she gave John, a, she gave Zacharias a tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And then his tongue was loose, and he spoke. I know you already knew that, but I had to tell it anyway. Numbers, verse 7, into the second part of the high, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that by way of the holiest of all, that is the most holy place, was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. This was not the real thing. The writer saying, this is not the real. Look at that tent out there. Look at that 15 by 15 room in the back. You can't go inside. It is so holy. But this is not the real thing. It is a type of the real thing. Does God dwell there? Yes, that's his throne room on earth. But that's not his real dwelling place. That's not his real throne. We cannot make a place for God. And when the temple was built, elaborate though it was, $5 billion worth, it had a most holy place. It had a throne room for God. It had the Ark of the Covenant, but it was still a shadow of that which was to come. Can't get over that. When I was a little boy, of course, grew up in Big Cove. We were all poor there. Everybody was poor. There was a toy I wanted. It was a car you could get in and had pedals on it, you could ride it. I just couldn't wait to get one. I never got one, by the way. But when the Sears Roebuck catalog came in, I got mother to let me cut that car out. Took scissors and cut it out. Didn't do a good job. But I looked at that car, 
and, and just felt a great consolation in being able to see the car that I wanted. It was a shadow. It was a picture. I could not ride in it. But it did me a lot of good to have that at my side. I know I'm getting into chapter 10, but I'm doing this on purpose because even though we're going to look at it next week, I want you to be familiar with it. You already are, but I want to talk about it. Chapter 10, 16, this is the covenant. He quotes back from uh, Jeremiah that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts. In their minds, I will write them and dads, their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. I must say this. He didn't say he would not forgive them. There was a remission. There was a forgiveness. But there was a remembrance. Every year those sins were remembered against them. They were their sins. God said, I'll assume responsibility. But they were still their sins. And he is saying, Jeremiah is saying, God's saying through Jeremiah, I should say, the time is coming when their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Where they have been remitted, verse 18, there is no longer an offering for sins. Jesus Christ made an offering for sins. Ask a question on a test recently to my young men in the Philippines. Where did Jesus offer his blood? And as I was reviewing the test before I sent it to my proctor there, I put a note in there and said, the true answer is not the cross. Because I knew they were going to say the cross. One guy put Calvary, and another one put the cross. As I reviewed the answers with them, I said, can you not read? It is not the cross. Jesus did not offer his blood on the cross. He did not offer his blood on Calvary. He shed his blood on the cross. Shed his blood on Calvary. He offered his blood in the most holy place in heaven where his father was. The high priest offered the blood of the bulls and the goats in the most holy place in the tabernacle and temple. He didn't offer the blood where it was shed. He put it in a vessel and took it into the most holy place and offered it there. Therefore, brethren, verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, incidentally. Why did he tell us that? Having boldness to enter the holiest. I've never been in the holiest. Have you? Of course we have. When we communicate with God, we are in the holiest if we communicate with him. With boldness we go there. I picture myself as leaving planet earth and passing through the heavens as Jesus did and going into God's throne room before his throne of grace and offering my prayers to him. And when I lead the congregation in prayer, I picture this church moving out of this place into the holiest, the most holy place in heaven. And pouring out our hearts to God. Therefore, brethren, having boldness into the holiest by the blood of Christ. We're not struck dead because of the blood of Christ. We're protected by the blood of Christ. 
by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil of the temple was torn in two, you remember, at Jesus' death. But there, there is now the veil of his flesh. That is encouraging to me. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why say that, Hebrews writer, he who promised is faithful? Because these are big things here. These are big things. Entering the holy place. Calling out to God in front of him with Jesus Christ at his right side. Interceding for us. That's what's important to me. And let us not waver because he who promised these things is faithful. It shall be done. Okay, back to verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who Perform the services perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now I've got a couple of Greek words here on purpose. The washings here is baptismos, which is the washings of things in the Old Testament, not the washings of a person uh, that is baptized into Christ. It's a different kind of washing. Uh, fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. I put a the orthos, the the, the orthos. I'm sorry, the orthos in there for the medical people, because you see the word ortho in here, which means straightening till the time of restoring to natural conditions. That's what happens when a bone leg breaks, and the uh, Ortho surgeon, if I can call him that, goes in and makes that thing straight again. That doesn't cost you anything, uh, medical people. But if you want to make a contribution, just drop it in the collection plate. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The writer said what we're talking about is not anything that that Aaron's people made. Not anything that Solomon's people made. Not anything that Herod made. It is not anything like that at all. It is a greater and more perfect tabernacle. It is the excellence of what God wanted to begin with. Not with the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ entered the most holy place. In Jerusalem? No. In heaven. What did he do? Obtained eternal redemption. He did that once for all, once for all times. Jesus Christ does not offer his blood in that place today. He offered it once. He went and offered it once. He doesn't do it every year. He offered it once. Once for all times. And that is sufficient. For if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, that's the red heifer, you need to dig that out and tell me what it means. 
and tell me all the implications of it. It's very interesting, by the way. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. And notice this. Those things were for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is big. Was there forgiveness in the Old Testament? Yes. Sins were taken away. That's forgiveness. Sins were moved. Forgive means to send away. Atonement means to cover. There was atonement in the Old Testament. But there was not, there was not a cleansing of the conscience in the Old Testament because it could not be done because the sins remained. The person who committed sins, even though God assumed responsibility, God did not destroy the sins because he could not destroy the sins at that time they had to be paid for he's going to take the blood of his son to destroy those sins the blood of his sons would pay for those sins they would be removed what's the forgiveness what's the difference in forgiveness in the old testament new testament a lot forgiveness in the old testament says i'll send them away from you i'll assume responsibility thank you god our sins are forgiven us But I'm going to remind you next year that those sins are still there. Ouch. I'll remove them again. But they're still there. Not now. Thank God when sins are forgiven, they are G-O-N-E. Paid for and gone. The atonement Jesus made at the cross. The gift he gave in the most holy place, covers us. Notice this note. Ceremonial uncleanness was not sinful, but it was restrictive. Women were unclean during menstruation and after childbirth. Men were unclean after nocturnal emissions. Both husband and wife were unclean after marital relations. They had to bathe but remained unclean until sunset, touching unclean things. Touching a dead body makes one unclean. An unclean person could not approach a holy object, could not worship. Were they sinful? No. I mean, that being unclean was not sinful. It was just that they were unclean. They had unclean flesh. And that flesh had to be cleansed. How could that be done? Through the Old Testament rituals. Blood of animals. Immersion. Various things. But it could not be, could not reach the conscience. In Numbers chapter 18, when God is setting forth the priesthood, he mentions that the people bring gifts to the temple, the gift of a, an animal, and the priest gets part of that, the uh, heave offering, the wave offering. And he goes on to say all the priests may eat of this and their families may eat of this. If they're holy, person who is unclean is not holy. Person who is unclean cannot approach God. Person who is unclean, though not a sinner because of uncleanness, but just because of his uncleanness, whatever that might be, and ever how innocent he might be, he cannot participate in holy things. Sacrificial foods could not be eaten by a person who was contaminated in the flesh. 
What does cleanse your conscience? Jesus' blood cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What does cleanse your conscience from dead works mean? It means, of course, a release from guilt. It has to do that. Dead works are works that don't do you any good. They're holding you back. And the blood of Christ will relieve you from that. But also it might mean this, to justify the cessation of engaging in dead works of the law. Special days, various washings, communications with God through priests. Can you imagine becoming a Christian in those days where your father has always taken you to Jerusalem at the Passover, where your family has gone there? Your grandfather is of that group, and your great-grandfather would be if he were still living. Your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had always done that. You're 30 years old, you become a Christian, the time for the Passover comes, and you say, no, I know I don't have to go to Jerusalem. But, you know, I mean, that's what I've been taught, but I was also taught that I have to go to Jerusalem. I have a problem with this. An understanding of the sacrifice Jesus gave will relieve your conscience of that. You're not, you're not violating anything if you don't go to Jerusalem. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. There's no need of it. But I've always gone three times a year. I just feel bad if I don't go. Jesus' blood relieves you of that bad feeling. It cleanses your conscience. And notice here's something else. <clears throat> I've talked about this before. I want to review it here. First Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto you in baptism but also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Notice this. Peter was writing to pilgrims and the dispersion. He was writing to Jews who had become Christians. He was writing to Jews who were supposed to understand Christianity. He was not writing to us guys over in Big Cove. If he'd been writing to us, I would have said, okay, you know, I'm going down here to the Flint River, take a swim this Saturday afternoon. It's, after all, it's September, it's hot. And I get down there, <clears throat> and I see someone out in the water, no. Wow, you talk too much. Two men out there and a lot of people on the bank say, why are they out there washing that guy? I guess he's been out in the cotton patch. Maybe he needs to get that dirt off of him. Probably what us boys would have thought over in Big Cove, but that's not what these people would have thought if they'd seen it. They would have said, hey, he's being purified in the flesh. He has been unclean, and now he is clean. Now, 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 Peter says it's not that. It's not getting rid of that. It is the answer, no, that's a wrong word, of good conscience toward God. <coughs> Eparotema is used one time in the Bible. I put it in here because it's just used one time in the Bible, here it is. In 1611, when the King James Version was translated, 
translators didn't know what it meant. A lot of information has come to the front since then in Greek literature, and it was determined to mean to request, to make an inquiry, or to appeal. The ESV translators to an appeal to God for a clear conscience or good conscience. That's what baptism is for. It's to say, God, clear my conscience. How can he do that? By getting rid of all our sins and letting us know our sins have been forgiven. For this reason, back to the text. For this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I just, I have this redemption of the transgressions bold-faced here because it did not say redemption of the transgressors. It said transgressions. And every commentary that I ever saw talks about the transgressors being delivered, and they were, because their transgressions were taken away. From where testament is, there must also necessity be the death of a testator, for testament is forced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Goes into detail here about how it was done. The first covenant was made, activated in Exodus 24, 4 through 8. And Moses came down from the mountain, built an altar, and did an Acts 2 event in Exodus 24. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. The kingdom was established. Christianity started in Acts 2. Judaism, the law of Moses, was inaugurated right here in Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. Tells what he did that. Uh, Look over at verse 21. He likewise sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is in the context of animal blood. Blood of Christ is not even under consideration here. Trying to show what the old law did, that the blood had to be there to grant remission. And, of course, that projected as a type into the antitype, which is Jesus Christ. We know that no man was ever, would ever be in heaven by animal blood. No man's sins would be ever ridded completely without animal blood. They would, without Christ's blood, I mean, I'm sorry. He would be, they would be taken from him at the offering of animal blood, but God would still hold those sins in an area where he knew who they were and what they were. So uh, it was necessary in verse 23 that a copy of these things in heaven should be purified with these. A copy, a copy, the Old Testament copies. But the uh, heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is, by the blood of Christ, that had to be. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. Think what it is when you approach God in his most holy place. Jesus Christ being there. Just remember, 1 John 2, My little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us bow. Father, thank you for the blessings in Christ. Thank you for this great book. Thank you for this good class, all the people who are here. Pray that you'll bless us as we study together. Bless us as we leave this place. Protect us from the wiles of Satan. We pray through Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.